Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Thanks for joining us in kicking off 2024. A couple quick New Year's announcements before we get into the interview with Nick Shaw today about the death of his son at Big Sky, Montana. And I'll be quick so we can get right into the good stuff. So first announcement is that I am changing up the format a little for 2024. As you know, we do an episode every other week, so two a month, and the first episode of the month is going to be staying with the regular format, like today's show, where we share real-life stories and talk about the navigation of them, the learning, etc. And the second episode of the month is going to be what I'm calling the Love Your Story Quick Chat. This is going to be one inspirational idea in 15 minutes or less. Now, I'm doing this because I have enjoyed little shows where I can get an idea to ruminate on um, during the day, even when I just have a minute to listen to a show. My commute into my office isn't very long. It's like 10 minutes. So if there's some of the shorter shows, I really appreciate during that time. So I'm going to provide that same thing for you too. So we're going to do that format throughout the entire year. So the second announcement for the new year is that I now have a voicemail on my website so I can hear from you more. The website is www.loveyourstorypodcast.com and on the homepage, there's this small picture of a microphone down in the bottom right corner. Just click on that and you can tell me what you liked or didn't like about an episode, share your thoughts, whatever you want, share your own experiences about one of the shows we did. Anyway, it's there for you. So I'd love to hear from you and I will reach out and answer everyone who reaches out to me. So let's get started. Today's show takes us into the story of the death of a nine-year-old boy after a ski accident at Big Sky, Montana. The tragedy, as you would expect, brought his parents to their knees on a path that none of us want to walk. But Nick Shaw, today's guest, sought meaning as the lifeline to hold on to as he moved forward, and part of his healing process involved putting it down in writing. I understand that. He's sharing the lessons that he learned and lessons not only of how to traverse this space, but lessons he learned from his son that he realized after his son's passing. So stay tuned as he shares his story of what happened with his son and what happened with his family. And then we're going to discuss part of his book. His book is called My Teacher, My Son, Lessons on Life, Loss, and Love. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Nick Shaw, William's father, an accomplished executive coach, and the author of My Teacher, My Son, joins us today to share his story and the things that he's learned along the way. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Very happy to be here. And uh, yeah, looking forward to to talking to you and your audience. To our full big discussion. I wanted Mm -hmm. to start out with a quick review of your book. This is from Kelly McGonigal, PhD. She's 
Is it a she or a he? Uh, she. She is a research psychologist at Stanford University, and she writes, quote, it seems impossible that a book about unimaginable grief could offer so much hope. Yet, that is the gift of my teacher, my son. With breathtaking honesty, Nick Shaw shows how love, joy, and continued connection coexist with loss, change, and challenge. The courage of Nick's self-reflection empowers each of us to find a way forward, a truly heart-empowered read. Very high praise, Nick. Very high praise. Um, And I really like this idea of the coexisting of the good things, love, joy, continued connection, coexisting with loss, change, and challenge. So we'll get to that. But Mm -hmm. let's start with your story. I finished your book last week. very moving, and but none of the listeners know who you are yet. So let's yeah. just start from that space. You and your family are getting ready to go on your ski vacation, or maybe you're already there. Just go ahead, pick up and tell us about you and your family and that day. Absolutely. So, um, so I live in I live in Massachusetts uh, uh, with my family, um, and uh, in February of 2019, it's, we have school vacation. So we always would go away on ski vacations. I grew up skiing and skiing was a big part of my life. And, and, uh, it's something that I wanted to do with my family. And my son, William, what the time was nine was an avid skier. And he kind of wanted to be like dad. And so he got into it. He, he was a, he was on the ski racing team and at our local mountain. And so he was really passionate about it as well. And it's really something that bonded us. And then my younger son, Kai, was just starting out in his journey as a skier. He was six at the time. And so, like we always did around this time of year, we always take vacation out to, to the western United States, to the Rocky Mountains, to do a ski trip in, in one of the resorts out there. And this year, uh, we went back to Big Sky, Montana, where we'd gone the year before because we really loved it. Um, and, you know, uh, it was uh, a Tuesday of, of the vacation, so a couple of days in. And what started out as an absolutely gorgeous, magical day, um, you know, beautiful conditions, perfect weather. Um, you know, we got out. Uh, I, I was going to go out and ski on my own for a little bit. And then my my kids went to ski school. And then I was going to meet up with William and some some of our uh, friends from our town and ski to the top of the mountain uh, where some of the more challenging runs were. Um, and we tried to do this a year before, but something happened. We never made it. So William was really excited to get up there. Uh, because, you know, for a kid, nine-year-old to, to ski sort of the black diamonds, that's like a big deal. Um, I was impressed when I was reading the book at his scale. We're big skiers, too. And for a nine-year-old to do a double black diamond, that was. Yeah, he was, <laughs> he was a good skier. Um, and so we did it. We got to the top. We skied down and it was amazing. I mean, I, I love skiing. It's it's really it is a passion sport for me. And so to to, to have that moment to see my son thriving and loving it. It was, you know, one of the one of the proudest moments of my life, and and he had the run of his life, having a blast. I actually filmed the whole thing on uh, on a GoPro, um, and so you know, we we did it. We conquered the mountain. Yay! Uh, yeah, <laughs> and um, you know, the plan all along was to do do a couple runs up at the top with our family friends, and then we were going to meet my wife Susie and our younger son Kai because they were skiing at sort of the easier part of the mountain. We were going to ski as a family for the rest of the day. So William and I had to peel off from the group and, and make our way to the bottom. You know, we somehow got lost or we, I took a wrong turn. I'm, you know, mountains can be confusing sometimes. And, and we ended up on what's called a catwalk. And for those of you who don't know, a catwalk is it's effectively just a pretty flat road that kind of winds its way up the mountain. It's just kind of an easier way to the bottom. And so William and I were on this catwalk making our way to the bottom. 
off the side of the 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 hill of the catwalk it's it's a bit steeper and there's trees and, and deep powder snow and i was about 10 or 15 feet in front of William because my weight you know carried me a little bit faster than william and and honestly on these types of runs you just literally just point your skis downhill and glide down um and i, I even called my wife i'm like hey we're five minutes from the bottom you know because we were and as i was making you know the the, the road uh uh, curved and as I was making the curve, um, all of a sudden a skier came whizzing past me. He said, "Hey, is that your kid who went into the woods?" And so I, you know, immediately stopped. Was like, "Okay, you know, I, I totally expected." Okay, William maybe caught an edge, was stuck in the powder snow off the side of the trail. So I stopped. I took my my skis off and then proceeded to walk back up the hill. You know, fully expecting to see William kind of grappling to get out of the sort of heavy snow on the side there. When I walked up the mountain he was nowhere to be found. Um, I mean, it was, it was really quite eerie because it was everything had gone dead quiet. Um, and there was no sign of him anywhere. Now, normally when a skier goes off sort of the, a groom slope into powder snow, you either see their tracks or an impression where their body might've fallen, but there was nothing. Yeah. That's weird. So it was very weird. It was, it was, I mean, it literally was like he just disappeared into thin air. And, um, so I, said, okay, well, I need to go look for him. I yelled his name. I was, you know, doing everything to try to locate him. Uh, and then eventually kind of went into the woods myself. Um, but after probably five feet into the woods, I was sunk down to my chest in powder snow. Wow. That's some deep and powder. It was deep powder and there was tree wells everywhere where tree wells are holes that form around the, uh, the trunks of trees and then powder snow kind of makes this this well kind of a, a formation now you don't and want so to fall get in out there you'll, you'll now, suffocate. Now I was, yeah yeah that that's the risk when you fall into a tree well you can you can suffocate uh, if you can't get out um so i had to get out because there was risk for me at that point and i eventually made my way out and flagged down um, a mountain employee and then eventually we called the ski patrol and a, and, and a search ensued um, so I, I stayed there for a little bit, but then the ski patrol, you know, their reaction was, well, there's no tracks here. So he must've skied by you. Um, and so they said, go down the bottom mountain and see if you can find him. And so I was calling my wife, telling her to look for him. I went to the bottom, look for him. Um, I was joined by then a, a female ski patroller and we were kind of looking in the lodge, looking in the lines and it was getting later in the day, probably three three thirty ish and you know it's it was february so the the sun was starting to set a bit it's getting colder and then just as i came out of the the lodge i heard the the walkie-talkie on the, of the ski patrol come you know start coming to life with chatter and they said found but unresponsive so they found william but he was unresponsive and i, I remember that that was just like a gut punch i just fell to my knees i just kind of like felt nauseous like i just yeah, the wind was knocked out of me. Before that, did you even think that was a possibility? Like he was such an accomplished skier to have something happen off a cat track just is so unlikely, you know? No, exactly. No, I mean, again, I, I was in front of him. I, I thought nothing about the fact that I was in front of him. Like if, I, if I'm on a steeper, more challenging run, I'll be behind him so I can mm -hmm. see where he is. And, and and if he falls, I can help him. But, you know, on a catwalk, I, I no, I didn't. It was a, about as low risk as it gets in skiing. Right. Um, so, so yeah. So I, as soon as that happened, then they put me on a snowmobile and drove me up to the ski patrol clinic, uh, where they would be. You know, they would take him for for treatment. And you know, at that point, I was like, okay, found unresponsive. That's concerning, but 
you still have some hope that he'll be able to be um, treated. So I, I went to the ski patrol clinic, waited there. They kind of brought me into a waiting room and, and um, you know, I was just kind of, it was, it was torturous just to wait, uh, wait and not know. Um, How long did you have to wait? It's a good question. Honestly, the, the timing of that day is so murky. Um, I mean, it could have been 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20. I, I really don't know. It was, it, was, hey, it seemed like forever, to be honest with you. Eventually they brought him in. Um, but actually, actually, right before that happened, I heard a helicopter outside. So I was like, okay, helicopter, that means maybe he's badly hurt, but, you know, they'll take him in for treatment down in, in Bozeman, Montana, where there's a bigger hospital. That gave me a glimmer of hope. Uh, they brought him in. I didn't see him. They kind of kept me away from the entrance because they you know, didn't want me to see him. Um, so all the commotion came in. They brought him into a treatment room and continued to wait. And then, again, not sure how much time had passed, but then the doctor finally came out and and um you know he said i'm sorry and that was and that was you know that's that's when the the worst possible thing that can happen to a parent happen is to find out that your child is dead um and yeah i don't, I don't even quite remember what my reaction was I, I think i was just in shock and numb but what had happened to him nick it's a great question. I, 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 to this day, don't know what happened to him. I don't know what caused him to veer off a relatively flat road, um, off the side of that road. And then obviously he hit a tree. So he, something caused him to veer off a flat road, turn almost perpendicular turn, and then ski off the side of the hill and then go right into a tree. I don't know what caused him to do that, though. I never... Unless I can find that skier who skied past me, I'll never know. That's what I was going to say. Do you wonder if the skier that skied past you had something to do with him losing? Could be, or who knows? Was, or? It's it's something I've thought of a lot, and I even sometimes wonder: Do I even want to know? <laughs> to be honest with you, I don't. You know, um, so I don't know what caused him to go off the side of the the, the, the mount, off that side of that slope. Um, he was going pretty fast, and he was airborne because there were no tracks, right? right. So he. Yeah. So he went airborne and then hit a tree and which you know, is they, also he, super interesting because cat tracks, there's you know, there's no jumps, there's nothing to get you airborne unless you're just dropping off the side and you're going that, fast enough. So that must have been what happened. Exactly. I mean, that's that's the only plausible thing, right? Because again, the, the no tracks is the if, if he was not going fast enough, he would have just sort of his skis would have just gone down that slope and we would have seen tracks, but so yeah, he just went off the hill and hit a tree. Um, now, the one silver lining is that the coroner's report said he died on impact. So um, my biggest concern no until suffering. I found that news out was was suffocation and and could I have gotten to him sooner and helped him? Mm. Uh, so, oh Nick, I'm so sorry. Yeah, oh, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, it's about as awful as it gets. The waiting, the not knowing. Um, yeah, having to confront that kind of loss as a parent is not something you ever, you ever prepare yourself for. So where was your wife at this point? So she had gone back to the cabin we rented to see if he somehow skied there. Um, she was with our, our family friend, the, 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 the wife of, our, you know, the mother of, the, of our family friends. Um, they had gone back to the cabin to, to, to see if he was there. And then I called her when I found out that William had died. And I just said, you got to get over here. I didn't tell her he had died because I just didn't want to do it over the phone. Um, and so I just said, you got to get over here. And, you know, and so she eventually got there, got to the clinic. And uh, 
she came in and I was worried because, you know, I, I didn't know how she was going to react. I, I, at this point, I was consumed by guilt. It's my fault. I was with him. Could I have done more to save him? Like all that stuff was churning in my head and, and having to face her and then eventually face my younger son, Kai, was just tearing me apart. Mm. Um, but she eventually got to the clinic. And, you know, when I told her, we were probably about 10 feet apart. And, you know, as expected, she just crumbled to the ground and, and just, you know, broke down. Um, and I quickly went over to her. And uh, when she kind of when I sort of helped her to her feet, she did one of the most selfless things anyone could do. Um, and I think it's one of the most amazing parts of the story is she she put her hands on my shoulders, looked me in the eye and said, it's not your fault. And, you know, and I say this in the book, it's, it's one of those fork in the road moments, right? That like sort of set us on a course towards healing and as, as individuals and as a family. But to have that, that presence of mind amidst that kind of pain and suffering to, to, she knew what I needed to hear. Mm. She knew how hard I was going to be in myself and, and to just find it within herself to do that is just, it's just one of the most amazing things I've ever experienced. What a good wife. It could have gone very differently. Absolutely. And it would have been understandable had it gone differently, right? I mean, you know, it's sure but she, she chose that path and, and human uh, response and think how different the the future could have been with something like that, how m- much more difficult that could have been. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's uh it's it was an amazing, amazing thing and a big you know, moment. Yeah. One of one of those star moments in life, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, we we are forever. I mean, we were bonded before, but this has bonded us um, so much more. So, well, you know, that brings up an interesting point, which is when we go through these things, we can choose the bitterness or we can choose the better. And mm-hmm. the choosing the better is that option to choose the lessons, to choose the meaning, to take these moments like this, this precious moment that your wife gave you. And to realize the beauty that comes from that, right? That couldn't have happened if the situation hadn't have happened. And so there are, despite the darkest moments, there are always pinpoints of light that we can focus on. And what we focus on determines the future, determines our our bitterness or our betterness. And so with you in dealing with this devastating loss, you chose to look for these lessons. Can you tell us, let's say, maybe your top three lessons that you have learned from this? One of the biggest lessons I've taken away from this, you know, um, is just around the fragility of life. Um, You know, when you lose your child, you're, you're, you know, the, the, the concept of mortality becomes so real for you right i mean i think most of us conveniently push our mortality to the side and because you know sure. you know maybe not close to it yet and and so it's like ah, it'll happen but that's it's far off into the distance when you lose your child there's no looking away from that fact and so and, and you know what it was a split second i mean he was 10 feet behind me he would we were five minutes from the bottom and in the matter of a second everything, everything changed. changed yeah um and so with that I think given that we have this one life that live and it can literally be taken in in a, in a nanosecond, one of the biggest lessons is we, we, we have to be more intentional about how we choose to live our lives. We, got, we have to pause more and actually smell the roses and, and get off that the proverbial hamster wheel, which I was on, by the way, uh, you know, from a career perspective and focus on what matters. I mean, I'm not saying you should 
be irresponsible and you know, sure, you sure. still have responsibilities in life. But I think many people get caught up in the hustle and bustle, the busyness. Our culture is, is, is all about that. It's, you know, the right. busier you are, the more successful you are. And we and, love that. I love your story. That's what this is all about is intentional living. That's our, that's our catchphrase. So yeah, yeah that's, you're speaking to the, yeah, yeah. I love speaking it, yeah. to the group that gets that. Yeah. And it, it is about intensive living. I think, you know, and, and for me, that meant pausing. I, I took a, I took a six month leave of absence and, and that pause saved me, saved our family. I mean, I, I could have easily gotten back on the horse to distract myself with work and, but pausing to me was the right thing to do. And it allowed me to process everything and and, and make sense of it and learn from it. And, Can I read the quote from your book? You say, quote, I took a six month leave of absence from work to be with Susie and Kai and to try to make sense of everything. This pause gave me the time and space to reflect and ask, is this the way I want to go on living my life? While the answer is important, I found that taking the time to ask the question is more important. I love that because absolutely the taking the time to ask and fully reflect on what that answer is, mm-hmm. is crucial. So what did you find when you asked that question? Yeah, I found that um, there were changes I needed to make. Um, I've spent way too much of my life allowing old narratives, limiting beliefs, uh, you know, get in my way. Uh, I've spent everybody way does. Everybody yeah. does. You got to learn. Absolutely. You got to learn how to take them out, don't you? It, exactly. And, and 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 I've spent way too much of my life sweating the small stuff. And so that was that was a big part of I guess it's another big takeaway for me from for, or lesson is you know, you you got to find a way to just let that go uh, and, and, and well Easier said than done, I know, but you have to figure out a way, strategies, get support, whatever you need, figure out ways to reframe those narratives so that you can allow the best version of yourself to emerge. Um, You can allow yourself to be yourself, which was a a key Mm. lesson that I took from William and I took from this experience. Um, Because again, we get one shot. (laughs) We get one shot at this thing called life and, you know, better to to be yourself than to be Mm. someone Absolutely. I like that because every individual is so individual and so beautiful and has all of these different colors to not be yourself is just a travesty at any level. So yeah, it absolutely is. But I, you know, as an executive coach, I coach a lot of, a lot of leaders and, 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 and a lot of, there's a lot of people who put on the mask, you know? Oh, I think and, everybody does. We just watched um Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and the theater. And it was all about that. Yeah, you know that opening number about the social masks that you wear. Um, it's a part of humanity, you know. For, clear back from the Greek plays, it's all about mm-hmm. that that mask and the persona that we put yeah. forward. So, yeah, to actually take that off and to discover within yourself to fully know who you are, and then to be able to embrace it in the way you live fully. Absolutely, everything we're talking about here is a process. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's and I, and I by no stretch of the imagination have um conquered that. I, I think that that is life's journey and I'm just on the I'm on the journey and and uh it's it's something I work towards every day. Hey, so talking I asked you about the three things you'd learned. One of them then was to ask that question to take stock of your life. Do am I living the way that I want to and to appreciate every moment with intention? What's number 2? Well, I think number two was around this notion of, of being yourself, 
Okay. Right? Being find yourself. That, find that courage to be yourself. Um, and and if it if that means taking off the mask, being more vulnerable okay. or facing some of your insecurities or demons or old narratives, then I think we all Beautiful. should be empowered to do that. Number three. Now in this, in the book, you're talking about my teacher, my son. So so many things you had learned from him as well as through this process. What's something you learned from him? From him? Um, yeah. So be yourself was one, but I'll, I'll offer another one too. Um, and this is this is more in the in the, I guess in the category of parenting. And I'll share a story to kind of uh, you know Great. frame the lesson because this is about storytelling. So I'll, I'll share a story. <laughs> uh, so I would say, call it two, three weeks after William had died, we were back home and um, had a dream. And and what what does happen? It has been studied is that when when someone who you love passes, they can often come back and in, in in your dreams they call it visits. And they're very, you know, the attributes of these visits that they're very vivid and you it, you have a conversation uh, with with the person, the loved one who you lost. And so in the dream, I was kind of searching for William. I, I don't know if I was necessarily back in Montana searching for him. I was just searching for him. And then I found him. And and, we had, and we had this big, you know, gave each other a big hug and told him how happy I was to see him. And he said he was happy to see me. And then... He, he used this phraseology and these are the exact words he said, I'm so happy to see you, but it's a shame because I can't stay, but I'm as proud of you as you are of me. I mean, it was like a gift from beyond to have my, my, my son tell me he's proud of me. Um, and, and, and as I reflected on that, I realized, you know, as parents, we have a lot of pride for our kids, right? That's, I, I suppose, obvious, but we don't realize that our, our kids look to us and, and they want to be proud of us. Uh, and, and our kids look at us and they look at everything we do and they take cues on how to be and who, and, and, and who they, how they should be in this world. And as parents, that's like, that's a huge responsibility and privilege because everything we do is going to be mimicked by our kids for better or for worse. Um, so that was kind of a, a reminder um, that, hey, you know, our kids want to be proud of us. So we, we need to be more intentional, but back to living intentionally about how we show up. And that doesn't mean that we're you know, we can't make mistakes and that's, you know, we're human, right? But I think, you know, when we make mistakes, own it and just be open and honest with our kids so that they can, they see that we're human and not these sort of. What a lovely gift. I'm so glad you got that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a very special moment. As your healing progresses and a year later, you and Susan have your third son. You say Mm -hmm. in another section of the book, quote, I had to be able to hold both my despair and my happiness at the same time. I had to accept that I could be happy and sad at the same time. I could revel in the delight of holding my newborn son and at the same time be devastated by the loss of my oldest son. I could delight in sharing new and exciting experiences with Kai and at the same time be shattered by the fact that I will never be able to share those same experiences with William. I had to stop letting one feeling diminish the other. I made room for both feelings to coexist. I feel like this is a beautiful discovery, a healthy Mm -hmm. mindset that allows for this complexity of emotion on this journey. Talk to us about this idea. So the first place where I was confronted by this, 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 these competing emotions in a very visceral way was when our third son Bodhi was born. 
And I was, you know, you know, in the postpartum room and they put Bodhi on my chest for the first time. And, you know, that's a very tender and sweet moment. And, and in that tender and sweet moment, I had the thought, wow, I wouldn't trade this for anything, which I think is a very normal sentiment at that, in, in that kind of an event. And the minute I said that, I realized, well, hold on a second. I can't say that. Can I really say that I wouldn't trade this for anything? Because the only reason Bodhi is here is because William is dead or William died. And so that was the first instance of like, how do I reconcile that? How do I possibly reconcile it? That one son was born because another son died. How do I reconcile being happy that I can hold this beautiful child, infant, and then I can, I'm totally in despair of losing William. And for the longest time, I was trying to reconcile it, and and but to no avail. Um, and and all that it did is that anytime I would feel happy, I would then feel guilty because I wasn't sad. Or anytime I felt sad, I would feel guilty because I wasn't present for Kai or Susie or, or Bodhi. And I finally got to a place where I just have to stop trying. Uh, I even say this in my book. You know, how do you how do you reconcile the unreconcilable? Well, you, you got to stop trying because by definition, it can't be done. And so that's where I you have to just hold both. Um, and, 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 and by accepting that truism, that's the only way forward. At least it was the only way forward for me because they just have to coexist. That just is, is the way that it has to be. I think this is beautiful and vulnerable and really important because I don't hear people talk about this very much, but I've experienced that at certain times where there's guilt if you're not paying enough attention or trying to remove thought from your mind of a loved one that's that's left and and there's that there's all the managing of the guilt that goes with something like that and obviously i have a different everybody's going to have their own experience but this idea of all the complicated emotions around that and being able to hold the happy and the sad in the same place seems crucial and healthy to be able to allow it you know, I mean, I mm -hmm. thank you for bringing it up and thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it took a lot to get there, but I'm glad I got there <laughs> to be honest, because if I had not gotten narrowed, I, I, I suspect it would, I'd still feel quite tormented by it. Right. I think yeah. torment's a great word for that. I, um, when you're going through something traumatic and we'll end with this thought, but how do we not let the emotion and the trauma just take over because trauma by definition is something that's hijacking our emotions, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So it's, it's overwhelming and the emotion that comes from that is overwhelming. But you mentioned in the book that we always have the ability to choose our mindset. I'm always mm -hmm. referring to Viktor Frankl with this also, you referred to him in your book as well. But, you know, I've spoken with other people who say in those traumatic spaces, they don't feel like they have choice. You know, well, what's mm -hmm. your experience with that? Yeah. So I think, I think, and to level set here, that took me a while to get there. I, th I think, you know, in, in the early days of, of, of my grief with William, I mean, that getting there took a while. Um, it was in the early days, I was just consumed by, by emotion. I went to very dark and, 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 and negative places. Um, so you have to go through that. I think, I think there, that, that is part of the process. You have to kind of grapple with those emotions and, and I think the best thing to do in those moments, you have to learn how to be with them and not try to push them away. I think when we try to push away our emotions, particularly the negative emotions, they just come back stronger. Um, and so learning how to be with them, uh, and I think my training as a, as, a, as a coach helped me with this, is the way I did it was I meditated every day, and then I would always try to find a lesson in in, in all of this. And then I, would all, I would also take stock of where I was from a grief perspective and how I was feeling. And I would write that down in a journal. 
Mm-hmm. So I would, I, I got into a regular practice of naming my emotions and where I was. And I think that helped me eventually get to a place of finding positive ways of reframing things and, and, and moving forward. Thank you for sharing your path on that, because I think that's, it's a place that we all have to navigate at some point, you know, yeah. knowing how other people do it is, is key. So anything you would like to share as we end up um, here, any, any topics that we haven't talked about that you feel are important? Yeah, I think I think one of the one of the topics I, I I talk about, or one of the lessons I also talk about is is this notion of acceptance. For a long time, I was hanging on very tight to what was right, which was having uh-huh. winning in my life. I was having a family at a different stage of different ages. Kids who were older, kids who were more independent, um, and I was holding on to that. And, and then by holding on to that, I, I wasn't able to appreciate my new life, right? A life without William, a life with a, with a newborn. And I think when we, when we long for what is, and, 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 and then also hope for what will be someday, then we, we're just never present. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's only by accepting what is that we're able to actually just be in the moment and, and enjoy what's in front of us. Um, and that was the big lesson that Bodhi taught me or having Bodhi taught me um, because for a while in those early days of having Bodhi, it was very hard. And, and it, had, it took me a while to just accept that this is our new life. Um, and also by accepting the fact that William was no longer with us allowed me then to find new ways of co- connecting with him, of building a new relationship with him that was different from the relationship I had when he was here. Um, and I think that's a big part of the grief process is how do you, how can you connect with the person you lost in a new way? Mm, that's neat. You know, what's fascinating is through this one event in your life, which of course it's a complex event, but you've just in our discussion, we've named four or five different really crucial life lessons that are important to a human as they evolve, as they become higher level, as they have a greater understanding of survival here, Mm -hmm. you know, mortality. And and everybody gets those in a different way. And some people don't get them because they'll block them out. They won't learn. Mm -hmm. But but this one event for you has given you such gems, such beautiful beautiful things and you've you've looked for them and cultivated and found them. Congratulations. Thank you. No, that, that that means a lot. It it, um, it was my way of making meaning out of this thing, right? Mm. I, I, that that I had a very strong need for me. Like, what this happened, right? So, why? What's the meaning okay. behind all this? And 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 the best I could come up with, which is why the name of my book is "My Teacher, My Son," is that I need to learn from this so I can live a better life, but I so I can help also others hopefully <laughs> live better lives. By which is what life. you're doing, yeah. So, share us. Tell us about your book. Share with us where we can get it and all the deets. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, book is called My Teacher, My Son, Lessons on uh, Life, Loss, and Love. Um, and it's available for sale uh, now on Amazon. Um, it will eventually be available for sale in other channels in the in the coming weeks. Um, but right now, the best place to get it is Amazon. Um, and you can get it either as a, a paperback or a Kindle uh, ebook. And, um, you can also, if you're interested in learning more about me, I have a, a website called meetnickshaw.com, which talks a little about me, about my story. I have some blog articles that I, I, I write, uh, and share, and I will also be posting different, uh, different things I do in, in the media. Nick, thank you for being here so much. And all of his contact information will be in the show notes on loveyourstorypodcast.com. So you can refer to that and find him as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. One of the most human things we do is to share our stories so that we can learn from one another's experiences. 
Today, as we are starting off into 2024, Nick has shared the story of his journey of navigating tragedy and grief so that when we face our own dark nights of the soul, that we will know how others have walked theirs. And he shared some beautiful, some beautiful lessons, some wonderful things that we all need to learn and and come to understand. So as we are moving forward into 2024, um, blessings to all of you. Blessings as you face the hard things that are in front of you. Blessings as you take these wonderful, beautiful gems that we learn from and incorporate and live forward, accepting ourselves, removing the masks, living with intention and being present in each moment so that we can fully, you know, smell those roses, suck the marrow out of life. <laughs> so please share this episode with anyone that you know who would benefit from hearing this story around the technological campfire. And we will see you in two weeks for the Love Your Story quick chat, which is the new thing we're starting this year. One inspirational idea in 15 minutes or under. And that will be the second show of every month. So we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>